to be my guide. Dear congregation, there are many misunderstandings about the Christian faith. Many have the wrong idea what the gospel is all about. Suppose we were to ask people in our communities, in our workplaces, what do you think the Bible really teaches? Well, we might receive a number of different answers. We might have those who stare blankly at us because they don't even know what we're talking about. Others would say, well, you just need to be good and do the best that you can and hopefully you go to heaven. Others would say, well, what I think the Bible teaches us is that you have to go to church and you have to say your prayers and you have to sing some songs. And still others would say that Christianity is all about uh, uh, something that's negative. It's just uh, Christianity is just intolerant. You Christians always say no. You're against evolution, abortion, uh, against women, against freedom, they say. And, and that's how people can speak about the Christian faith and the Christian message. And if that is what Christianity is all about, whether that be lots of rules of, of do's and don'ts. Now, the Christian faith does have do's and don'ts. But if that's what it is, and if it's just that you are negative and intolerant, you're against certain things, or if it's just rituals... Engaging in certain ceremonies, well, then there are plenty of options out in our world, plenty of religious options. But, friends, the gospel isn't about just bringing a set of do's and don'ts or coming with a list of rituals and ceremonies. The Bible tells us what is wrong with us, deeply wrong with us. And it tells us the only way to deal with our sin and our disobedience and restore us into the favor of God. The gospel doesn't just come with some good advice or with a list of rules or prescribing a set of rituals. It tells us about God and what he has done to save sinners. If it was about you and me doing this and doing that, then that would not be good news. That would be a recipe for despair. But friends, the gospel tells us first and foremost how God has come to deal with us and our sin. And that truly is good news. It's the heart of the gospel that says God saves sinners by grace by grace alone. And that's what you can write over the sermon this afternoon. Saved by grace alone. Saved by grace alone. And we'll see four things. First of all, why it's needed. Secondly, what it is. Thirdly, how it's enjoyed. And fourthly, what it leads to. Saved by grace alone. First of all, why it's needed. Secondly, what it is. Thirdly, how it's enjoyed, and fourthly, to what it leads. Why do we need grace and grace alone? And 
Paul, in the opening verses of Ephesians 2, could not be more clear why every single one of us needs the grace of God. Verse 1, if you want to follow along with, with me in your Bible, feel free to have the Bible open. And there he says, and you. And I'm skipping to, were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. In times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Why do we need the grace of God? It's because of our desperate condition. Before God, we are dead in sin. That's the one thing he says about our desperate condition. We're dead in sin. Yes, our eyes are blinking. Our hearts are beating. Our toes are tapping. Our feet are walking. But we're spiritually dead by nature. Sin hasn't just sickened us. Sin hasn't just disabled us. Sin hasn't just made us a little dysfunctional. Sin hasn't just given us a little rash or left us with a little scratch. Sin has left us dead to God. Lifeless toward God. Now, I know that funeral home people and embalmers and morticians with some skill can do remarkable things with dead bodies. They can almost make the dead body look as if it's alive. But no matter how the mortician tries to dress up the body, that dead body is lifeless. It can feel nothing, smell nothing, say nothing, hear nothing, do nothing. You prick the dead body, it won't move. You put a horrible stench by its nostrils, it doesn't smell. You make a loud noise by his ears, it doesn't hear it. Now that's how it is with us by nature. Sin has left us dead to God, lifeless toward God. I know by nature we can do many religious things. We can make our way to church. We can open our Bibles. We can put some words together that make a prayer. But sin has killed us in our relationship towards God. That's how we are, dead to God, dead to the love of God, dead to the knowledge of God, dead to the life of God, dead to the enjoyment of God. Have you ever felt that? Spiritual deadness that marks us by nature. But it's worse. Our condition isn't just that we're dead towards God and all the while dormant and inactive. No. We're very active. Look at what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. They're walking. They're following the world, their their own flesh and the devil. That's what leads us to say the second thing about us. Not only are we dead 
in sin. We're dominated by sin. We're dominated by sin. We're, we're dominated by the world. We're dominated by our own sinful flesh and lusts. And we're dominated by the devil. The world sets the pattern and we follow it. What the world does, we do. The things that distract the world, they distract us. The worries the world has are our worries. They try not to think about death, judgment, eternity, and God. And we try not to think about death, judgment, and eternity, and God. And we're dominated by the cravings, desires of our fallen human nature. And we're bombarded today with passions stirring our cravings for pleasure and treasure and the desire to be entertained and the desire to satisfy our lusts and the desires for status. And we're dominated by the devil, Paul says in verse 2. He pulls the strings in our life by nature. He tempts you and you fall for his temptation. That's how it is by nature. Ordinary people, also church people, ordinary people are living their lives on the dominion and direction of Satan by nature. It's a dark picture. It's a solemn picture, but it gets worse. For Paul is painting our picture as a serious, dreadful condition that leaves us not only dead in sin, dominated by sin, but thirdly, doomed because of sin. Doomed because of sin. The last words of verse 3. And were by nature the children of wrath even as others. By nature we're under the pure holy anger of God Almighty. And we're destined to experience that anger in its terrifying fullness in hell. That's why we need the grace of God. And have you seen that about yourself? That this is not just a description of people outside of the church who are very wicked, who maybe end up in prison, but that this is our condition. This is your condition. This is my condition by nature. Paul says, all of us. Paul says, it described me, even while I was a religious man, a Pharisee of the Pharisee. Oh, I was blind to this condition. God needed to open my eyes to see it. But have you seen it too? Friends, we won't desire grace. We won't cry out for grace unless we see that we're dead in trespasses and sins, dominated by your sinful flesh, the world and Satan, and doomed to perish. Because of your sin. There, and you need to reflect on that. We need to reflect on this from time to time. We need to reflect on it in this week of preparation for the Lord's Supper. To see what we are as sinners. What we have done as sinners. What we deserve as sinners. We won't cry out for his grace. We won't treasure God's grace passionately unless we see our sin seriously. 
We won't see the wonder of God's grace to save us if we don't see what sin has done to us. Friends, without the grace of God, we remain dead in sin, dominated by sin, doomed because of sin. It's why we need grace. That's our first point, why we need grace. Secondly, what grace is. What grace is. For if God were to leave us to our condition, our corruption, and our condemnation, that would be fair. That would be just. If he left us to perish in hell, we would just get what we deserve. But into our desperate condition, to which we're blind by nature, God comes to change us. He comes to redeem us. And if you ask why, it's because of grace. That's the secret to the Christian life. That's the unique message of Christianity, grace. Now, what is grace? How would you describe it? If you had to describe it, What words would you put together to describe grace? This word grace, even though we hear it so often, can be difficult to describe. But it's a good test. What description do we give of grace? Because a short definition, if we can put it into words, at least gives us something that we can understand. Well, let me, let me first use an illustration before giving a description of it or a definition of it. Yeah, let me use an illustration that may, may help us. Once a, a boy got into trouble at school for being rebellious and disobedient. When he came home from school, his father sent him immediately to his room without dinner. After a while, his dad went in to talk with him and asked him what his punishment should be. And the boy had been thinking about it, and he said that a fair punishment should be that he would be grounded for two weeks. And the father said, son, I agree that that's a fair punishment that sounds like a fitting punishment, but instead I want you to come downstairs and have dinner with us. And afterwards, I'm going to take you out for ice cream. And the boy was puzzled. The father said, that's grace, son. It's getting kindness while deserving punishment. It's getting kindness while deserving punishment. That's the idea. Or you can say it this way. It's undeserved kindness of God to judgment-deserving sinners. It's the undeserved kindness of God to judgment-deserving sinners. It's the undeserved saving kindness of God to judgment-deserving sinners. And that's what makes it amazing grace, isn't it? But now what does that grace do? What does that grace look like? Well, Paul says... 
That grace saves people like you and me. By grace, you're saved. It, it rescues people like you and me. He saves us. And now you might think that Paul would focus on the forgiveness that Christ has purchased or on the peace which Christ gives. And being a Christian does involve those things. It means that we're justified. It means that we're forgiven. It means that we're declared righteous. Uh, through Christ and that we receive a full pardon and peace with God and that's wonderful and that's precious but there's more and Paul's focus in the verses 4 to 7 is different for when he saves us he gives us a new nature he gives us a new heart he deals with that sinful nature that sinful condition that we have His grace raises us from our spiritual deadness. Verse 5. He hath quickened us. He has made us alive with Christ. He makes us alive in our soul. He resuscitates us. Your spiritual heart begins to beat. Your spiritual lungs begin to breathe. And we become troubled by who we've been and what we've done. And we're made alive to God. And we hear his voice by his word. And we begin to breathe after him and pant after him. And we want to know him. And we want to have a relationship with him. And we want to be restored to him. And he raises me up. He lifts me up. Pa- Paul says that. He not only makes me alive. But he lifts me up. Paul says he seats me even in heavenly places. And it's hard to take it all in. But but Paul is saying I'm welcomed into his presence. I'm brought into his inner circle. He takes me to his very side. He saves me from death to life. He he saves me from just living this horizontal, earth-focused life to having a vertical, heaven-centered life. He he saves me from hell to heaven, from being a child of wrath to being a child of love. And I may have fellowship with him and I may have communion with him. And that's the salvation he gives. It's a saving grace and a sovereign grace. Yes, a, a saving grace, but also a sovereign grace. For when you read in verse 5 and again in verse 8, For by grace ye are saved... Or, you can also translate it by grace, you have been saved. Then while it says that God's people then are saved, it doesn't spell out who does the saving. doesn't say who is the author of this salvation. But clearly it's not you and me. I mean, who can raise us from death who can raise us from spiritual death who can save us from hell and who can give us heaven who can set us free from the power and guilt of sin and draw us to Christ we can't but God can and God does and God has Paul says he's done this for you if you're in Christ And did you notice that he uses the past tense? You once were this. 
If you're a Christian, you once were a child of wrath, but now you're a child of love. You once were following the world, but now you're following the Lord. You were once living under the rule of Satan. Now you're living under the rule of the Savior. It's a a sovereign grace that is shown to you. Yes, a saving grace and a sovereign grace. But let me say Another thing about that grace, not only that it's a saving grace and a sovereign grace, but it's a full and a free grace. It's a free and full grace. Look again at verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's free. It's not of works, it's not By what you've done, it's not your own doing. It's not a reward for the things that you have done. How do you know that you're saved? The the usual answer to that question, how do you know that you're saved, consists of a list of things someone has done or not done. But it's not your doing. This grace is not a result of your doing. It's not a reward for the things that we've done. It's not something that we've accomplished or what we've done that can save us. Remember that that conversation that one night, one uh, man, that religious man came to talk to Jesus, Nicodemus. He, He commended Jesus for his works. Master, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles Unless God be with him. He's he's patting Jesus on the back. And it seems like he expected Jesus to pat him in the back too. For being a decent and moral uh, person. But Jesus responded to Nicodemus. Remember verily, verily I say unto you. Except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching him about the new birth. And teaching him about grace. Nicodemus You contributed nothing to your physical birth and coming into this world, and you can contribute nothing to your spiritual birth and entering into heaven. Living right won't save you. Doing good won't save you. And getting baptized won't save you. And giving money to the church or needy causes won't save you. And loving others won't save you. It is not of works. The bottom line is this. Salvation is free. It's a gift we receive, not a reward we earn. You can't earn a gift. You can't buy a gift. You cannot win a gift. It's freely given to you or it's not a gift. That's how God saves us. Paul is saying, it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. That's why it's amazing grace. Or as another hymn writer put it, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace Grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Why we need this grace. What this grace is, 
But how do we receive it? That's our third point. How do I receive this grace? How do I come to know this grace for myself? How do I appropriate it? Does this grace just automatically go to everyone in our world? No. Does this grace automatically come to everyone in church? No. We have to receive this gift of salvation, which is free. We have to receive it by faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith. We're called to receive it by faith, to appropriate it by faith. The gift of salvation is not received automatically just by anyone and everyone, but only by those who receive it by faith. Yes, and that's the stress in the scriptures, isn't it? I mean, remember the jailer coming to Paul in Acts 16 as a result of that earthquake. And the prisoners are, are still there, and the Philippian jailer is ready to take his life. And Paul says, do thyself no harm. And he begins to realize he needs salvation. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And what's Paul's answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, verse 31. And here again, faith is called for essential. To enjoy the grace that God holds out in the gospel. But now what is this faith? What does that look like? Well, and then we can think of what our Hutterberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 7. Or we can think about the description of faith that is given in Hebrews 11. Spurgeon, he gives an illustration about faith. Uh, he, he speaks about going to the south of England by the sea and finding these limpets or sea creatures that suction themselves to the rocks. And if someone were to hit these, uh, these limpets or sea creatures with a stick, they would cling even more to the rock. And Spurgeon says that's a picture of faith. Faith takes hold of Christ. Faith suctions itself to Christ. Faith clings to Christ. It clasps Christ. It takes refuge to the Lord Jesus and cleaves to him and clings to him. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And friends, the faith that clings to Christ involves the whole person. It doesn't just involve the head, for then it may be just an historical faith. And it doesn't just involve the emotions, for then it may just be a temporary faith. True faith confides in him with our mind because he has proven himself reliable and trustworthy. It confides in his word and promises and trust them, and that gives reasons to confide in him with our mind. But it not only confides in him with our mind, but it trusts in him with our heart. Faith is a heart commitment, a soul entrusting activity, giving yourself over to him. And you don't do that without trusting him with your heart. 
embraces him with our hands and arms of faith as the woman with the issue of blood laid hold of him. And it said it involves our whole life. Yes, our mind, our heart, our hands, but also our feet. We follow him with the feet of faith because he says more often in the Gospels, follow me. Leaving all for Jesus, committing your way to him. I wonder if you know this faith. If you have this faith. Have you with all your need and your guilt entrusted your lost soul to him who speaks in the gospel and who draws you to himself? But maybe you say, but pastor, I don't have this faith of myself. Maybe someone says, pastor, I miss this faith. Do I have to work this faith up in myself? No, Paul says this faith is a gift of God. This faith does not originate in us. This faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit, implanting it in our hearts. That's true. But it's a gift. And you may ask for it. He delights to give this faith through the means of grace, under his word, so that you're enabled to believe But not that we would pat ourselves on our backs and say, well, I did well to believe on Jesus. No, we don't congratulate ourselves on the wise decision we made for Jesus. It's not our doing. We believe on him because the Lord has shown us our need of the Savior, and we can't receive him any other way than through faith. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith. And not of works. That's an important lesson. It's a difficult lesson. But it's a lesson he's willing to teach us. David Morse was an American missionary to India. He became friends with a, a pearl diver. His name was Ramfayu, if I'm pronouncing it right. Many evenings, David Morse, the missionary, spent in Ramphayu's cabin reading to him from the Bible and explaining the way of salvation to him. And Ramphayu enjoyed listening to the word of God. But when the missionary pressed him to receive Christ as Savior, Ramphayu would shake his head and say, you Christian, Your Christian way is too easy for me. I don't want to believe. I want to deserve heaven. I want to earn my place in heaven, and so I'm going to work for it. And nothing the missionaries said seemed to have any effect on Rumfiu, and a number of years slipped by, the contact continued, but one evening the missionary David Morse heard a knock on his door, and he found this pearl diver at his door. He was ready to go on a religious pilgrimage in India to Delhi. He was going to do things to earn his reward in heaven, he said. But first he wanted to give the missionary a gift. He proceeded to take out a small box. And in that box was a pearl. He told the missionary about his son. The missionary was surprised to hear about his son because this pearl diver had never spoken about his son before. But, well, his son used to dive for pearls too. 
He was the best pearl diver in the co- these coasts of India. He had, a, he had a keen eye. He was a good diver. He could hold his breath for a long time. And this, this son of Remphayu always dreamed of finding the perfect pearl. And one day he found it. But when he found it, he had been under the water too long. That pearl cost him his life. And he died soon after coming back to ground. And the old pearl diver said to the missionary, David Morse, all these years I've kept this pearl, but now I want you to have it. And the old man, this pearl diver, he opened the box, took it out of its wrapping and picked up this 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 sizable pearl and, and placed it in the hand of the missionary. It was beautiful. It would bring a great sum of money at any market. And then the missionary David Morse said to the pearl diver, What an amazing pearl. Let me buy it off of you. I'll give you $10,000 for it. Ramphayu said, What do you mean? Well, well, I'll give you $15,000 for it. Or, or if it takes more, I'll work for it. And Ramphayu said, Well, this pearl is beyond any price. No man in all the world has enough money to pay for what this pearl is worth to me. A million dollars could not buy this pearl. I will not sell it to you. You may only have it as a gift. But the missionary said, no. I can't accept it for free. Um, As much as I want the pearl, I can't accept it that way. That's too easy. I must pay for it. No, the old pearl diver said, you don't understand. My only son gave his life to get this pearl, and I would not sell it for any money. I cannot sell it to you. It's free. And the missionary gripped the hand of the pearl diver and said, you don't you see? That's what you've been saying to God all this time. God is offering you salvation as a free gift. It's so great and priceless that no man on earth can buy it. Millions of dollars are too little. No man on earth can earn it. No man is good enough to deserve it. It costs the lifeblood of his only begotten son to bring people like you and me to heaven. All you can do is receive it as a gift of God's grace for you, a sinner. Tears began rolling down the cheeks of the old man. The veil was beginning to lift. I see it now, he said. I could not believe that God's salvation was free. Now I understand that some things are too priceless to be bought or earned. It must be received. Let me receive it freely by faith. That's how I come to know this pearl of grace, too. By faith. Why we need this grace? Well, that because of our desperate condition. Of being dead in sin. Dominated by sin and doomed because of sin. What grace is? It's... God's kindness to people who deserve punishment. How I receive it is by faith. 
And lastly, to what it leads. To what it leads. Paul says it is not by works. If we are to receive God's gift of salvation, it must be in God's appointed way that's through faith. And if it's by faith, then that excludes any merit on our part. The faith principle excludes works. You can't have salvation partly by faith and partly by effort. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. You can't combine a vast amount of grace and a little contribution of works. God won't have that. There's nothing in salvation for which we can take credit. The Lord, we can't just say the Lord did most of it, but I did a little. No, salvation is by grace, through faith, apart from works. But that grace does have an effect. It does lead to something. Two things, in fact, Paul tells us. For one thing, it humbles us. This grace humbles us. Verse 9b, lest any man should boast. We're ready to boast about the things that we've got and the things that we've done. But grace changes all this. If I'm saved by grace alone, then I have nothing to boast of. I'll have nothing to boast of in heaven, in myself. Um, Someone said we shall not be able to strut around heaven like a peacock. Heaven will be filled with the exploits of Christ and the praise of God. There will be no self-congratulation in heaven saying, Wow, you did an amazing thing. What a good choice you made to be saved. Christ did it all. And all the honor and all the praise belongs to God. Not unto us, O Lord of heaven, but unto thee be glory given. That's our confession. That's the first thing that grace leads us to. It humbles us, and the second thing it leads to is it transforms us. It transforms us, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The salvation through Christ involves the transformation of the sinner. We're changed. He doesn't leave us the same. Grace doesn't leave us the same. God changes us. God shapes us by his grace. We are his workmanship. It's a special word that Paul uses here. It's it's what a potter does who makes a beautiful piece of pottery out of a lump of clay. It's what a sculptor does who takes a piece of marble and taps away to make this beautiful sculpture. How will that happen? Do we try our best to shape our lives? No, he transforms us by his grace. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. He does the shaping. He does the transforming of our lives himself. After all, he has the power to do that for he created us. And he is also the one who recreates us in Christ Jesus. He's not only the creator, but the recreator. And there's nothing better than to give ourselves over to him, to entrust ourselves over to him, to say, Lord, work in me too. Lord, take my life and let me be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Lord, change me. 
Lord, here I need chipping and there I need shaping. We're saved by grace and that humbles us. And that also transforms us. No, no, we're not saved by good works. Notice the prepositions. But we are saved unto good works. Good works are not the root of salvation, but they are the fruit of salvation. We're not saved because we do good works. We do good works because we're saved. We need to get the order right. But that's what he works so that we begin to live for him in the daily mundane tasks and trivial things of life in our personal interactions with others, in our work, at the office, on the farm, in your duties at home, in caring for your children, at school, in your eating and drinking. He saves us unto good works and a Christ-like life. And he prepared those works, he prepared them beforehand so that you might walk in them. He prepared them from eternity past so that you live them out in time. Yes, we begin to walk in them, Paul says. We don't just sit back and say, let go and let God. That's an expression in modern evangelicalism that says, I'll just be idle and I'll just be passive and it leads to this kind of spectator uh, type of Christianity. No, he makes us active out of thankfulness. He makes us walk in them. He makes us step out in faith in our homes and in our lives, seeking to walk with God, asking him, what wilt thou have me to do? And Paul will spell it out. If you want to know what good works look like, And just read Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. It means walking in love as Christ loved us. It means walking as Jesus walked. It's a love that's shown in the home. A faithfulness and diligence in the workplace. It impacts our relationships, our marriages. It's the fruit of his transforming grace Yes, because of the grace of God, it's a sovereign grace, a saving grace, it's a sanctifying grace. It's grace alone. And then, yes, next week the Lord's Supper is set forth in the midst of the congregation, and we need to see if we know any of these things. Also, if we know a change of heart and life, Yeah, there are three things that should be evident, our Lord's Supper form says so simply. We need to consider what we thought of in our first point. Our sinful nature and the corruption and the damnation that we deserve. We also need to think of Christ and his saving grace and what he has accomplished on the cross and whether we find our forgiveness in him. And we need to also consider the third thing that our catechism spells out in the third part, whether there is a life of gratitude, whether we are beginning to walk in obedience, whether we're walking in the Christian life unto good works in holiness. 
I didn't say that that will be there perfectly. But it will be evident. It will be there. But those three things that we need to see and to think about and reflect, those three things, the knowledge of those three things is not the reason for coming to the Lord's Supper. Grace alone is the reason I come. Grace alone. This is the heart of the gospel, friends. This is the Christian gospel 101, and we need this gospel time and again, don't we? And even Christians can have this disposition to return to what we've done since last time and how we've tried to live better and what we know and what we've experienced. And we can think that the way I have an ongoing relationship with God is by what I do right and what I do well and how I've tried harder and I've done better and we think that God will be pleased if I pray more and try harder and that will earn the right to be loved by God and we turn the gospel on its head again. Friends, we come to the Lord as sinners to be saved by grace alone and we come to the Lord's Supper as a company of sinners saved by grace alone. And it's not strange for true believers that every day when they wake up, there is a prayer on their lips. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, apart from thy grace, I would be bound for hell. Sometimes we can think of sin so lightly and casually because we've stopped thinking of God's glory and majesty. But because he's glorious and our sin is so serious. I don't know about you, but I need to fall upon his grace every day again. And friends, that's the gospel. And if you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, don't you need this amazing grace found in the Lord Jesus Christ? who did not just come to give us an example of how to be a good Christian, but he came to die for his body to be broken, for his blood to be shed, in order that sinners like you and me might be reconciled to God. And that fills me with wonder. And that leads me to bow before him and to cling to him, trusting in his mercy and grace. Amen. Let us sing number 417. Number 417, all the stamps.